Town Hall. We're going to do that with North Fork Christian Center. And then, of course, Easter on the 17th of April, we have our sunrise service at 630, right behind me up the hill here where you can see the sunrise. And then uh, following that, we've got a breakfast potluck, which is always a lot of fun. And then our normal 10 o'clock service will be here in this room on Easter. Um, if that makes you hungry, good. Uh, we've got potluck, potluck next week, too, so you don't have to wait till Easter to, to have potluck. Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we are going to finish up this chapter. Um, if you would just read along with me in your Bibles so you know what to expect. Chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray once more. Jesus, we ask that our eyes would be fixed on you, that our desire would be to follow you, that our ears would be open to hear what the Spirit has to say to his church we are coming to you with, with an attitude of humility, of submission, wanting to be led, wanting to be corrected if it's needed, wanting to be guided. You're the teacher. You're the leader. You are our Father. And we pray that as, as we follow you, as we, we strive to be about our Father's business, uh, you would reveal yourself to us, that our, our hopes, our hungers, our thirsts uh, wouldn't be in vain, but that you would come be with your people that you would dwell with your people, tabernacled among us, and that, that as we hunger and thirst for you, you would satisfy and satiate. Um, please bless us. Bless the preaching of your word, our hearing of it. Let us walk in obedience as a response to the things that you say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, in, in verse uh, 14, um, we talked about this a little bit last week. This bit where Paul says, I didn't write to shame you, but to warn you. First Corinthians is a letter that tells the church they're wrong. And the goal, of course, in writing a letter like that is not just to let the, the church know it was wrong. The goal was to set the church on a path that was right. It was so that the church would start doing what is right. And while this whole letter is really one long correction, those few verses in chapter give us the correct basis for that correction and really the heart behind all godly correction. Really, these verses show us the heart of God through Paul. Hebrews chapter 12 makes it clear that God chastens or punishes every son whom he receives and then it explains further that this is always for our good and we never like it. Amen. Uh, Paul, Paul didn't see himself writing to the Corinthians as just a teacher or just a judge or some kind of, you know, church government inspector to come in and check off all the things they were doing wrong. That was not his role within the church. He saw himself as their father. 
Paul is the parent, and he is loving his children well by warning them about where they're getting it wrong and, and knowing that continuing in error just makes the error worse. So Paul is there wanting to see the church fully saved and walking in that salvation. Paul loves the church. And this letter is sort of a rescue mission where a father sees his children engaged in dangerous activities that are causing them harm and will potentially destroy them if they continue in. And they need to know, one, that they are in grave danger, and two, that their father still loves them. And he loves them enough to bring them back from the ledge. The second purpose, that this teaching of the father's love, it cannot be overstated. Its importance must not be overlooked. It is, after all, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, I believe it's extremely important for us when we see material like this, this stuff that shows up in chapter 4, that we see it not only in the light of the gospel, uh, and we, we see it not only through the lens of the gospel, but we see it as sort of a representation of the gospel. Um, it's not simply that there is a slap on the wrist where the church is told with a shaking finger, okay, back to the straight and narrow with you. You know, of course, there's correction, conviction. If there is correction, let the conviction find its way to your heart. Let that land and do its work. But the greater purpose of these kinds of passages is not just to keep a church or an individual from straying, but to open up eyes to show not only how you might be wrong, but to show you the love of God, and the extent to which God goes to save lost sinners like you. In this passage, when it was written to the Corinthians, it was written to show them that they were wrong, but also that their father loved them. The letter isn't written to you. You're not the Corinthians, but it is written for you. And in this scripture, one of the ways in which the resurrected king speaks to his people is, is in, in this way that shows you that you can know that your father loves you enough to correct you and bring you back into full fellowship with him. Sometimes these scriptures, uh, this whole section in, in Corinthians in chapter 4 and, and 5 gets really weird, and then chapter 6 is kind of weird too. Uh, all these things can seem a little distant. You know, these aren't my problems. These aren't my sins, and Paul's not my dad. Uh, you know, we, we can make the mistake of, of thinking that these words are just words. They're not, or that they're, they're distant words for other people at other times. Well, these, these are com a communication of the, com of the kingdom of God, quite literally. And the kingdom, verse 20 says, is not in word, but in power. So remember, please, that this, this is a passage that is for you, and this is a passage that shows you God loves you. And that's applicable. That's personal. That's not abstract or distant. Thinking these truths were distant and theoretical, that was actually one of the problems the Corinthians were having. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 and 19 sort of remind us of the problem and how it's going to be soon addressed practically. In verse 18, he says, some are puffed up. Remember, um, arrogance in the church of Corinth was a big problem. Pride is what ultimately led to the divisions in the church that Paul has been addressing in this letter. And they're puffed up, it says, as though I were not coming to you. In other words, they thought of all Paul's words as things that belong on a page and no further. You know, they, they don't apply to their lives. These were those, there were those who were acting like correction would never come. Jesus tells a parable about these kinds of people, servants of a master who use the master's absence as an excuse to abuse the other servants. 
Jesus could have been talking about the Corinthians. But in Christ's parable and in Paul's ministry, the master eventually returns. He eventually does come, and he puts things in order. And, and Paul says at the end of this chapter, do you want me to come with a rod or with love? Because I can, I can do both. I can come both ways. What do you want? Paul says, I will come to you shortly. So when I do, how do you want this to go? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love or a spirit of gentleness? You choose. So we come to a passage of scripture that is for us and say, I can respond to this in a number of ways. I want my heart to be right to the Lord in receiving this word. And again, I would, I would remind you to look at this passage not just as a story about a guy named Paul and a church far away, but as a picture of the gospel that has saved your souls. Paul's warnings to the Corinthians included his promise, I'm coming again. Now, does that sound familiar to you at all? Does anyone else you know? Uh, does it, do you know of anyone else who says something like that? Okay, Sunday school answers are allowed. Jesus! Okay, we're, and, and, and we see a lot in this passage that reminds us of Jesus. I think that's probably okay to look to the scripture and see Jesus in it. I don't think for a second that Paul wasn't aware of this kind of thing when he wrote. He says very plainly, more than once, I imitate Christ. That's my only job. I imitate Christ. And of course, we take that to mean that he does, you know, good deeds and preaches the gospel. But for Paul, there was much more drama to it than that. He plays the role of Christ. He plays the role of suffering servant saying, I am crucified with Christ. He says more than that. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Paul had this beautiful, sanctified imagination where he saw himself as an actual extension of Christ's body, along with the other apostles and, and Christians. You see it here with him saying, I'll come again, you know, giving that kind of imagery. And you see it in both his letters to Timothy. You see it in Philemon. You see it here in verse 17, where Paul says, I'm sending my son. He just likes saying that and winking. He, he does this, he calls Timothy his son, he calls Philem in Philemon he calls Onesimus his son. And sometimes it, it seems like he's laying it on pretty thick. He's like, okay, so I was with you, and, and then I left, and then I'm coming again. Get it? Get it? Get it? And he's saying, okay, so I'm your father, and I'm sending you my son to teach you about me and my ways. Get it? See? It's like, does it remind you of that thing we talked about? Yeah, for Paul, it was living the gospel. I long for the spiritual perspective that would allow us to see ourselves in that kind of narrative, this kind of drama, where we are able to see that we have been called to live the life of Christ. It's not your story anymore. It's his story, and you're in it. Paul has followed Jesus long enough to know how much Jesus loves his church. Paul has followed God enough to know to what lengths he'll go to rescue an erring son, a prodigal. And he's followed Christ long enough to know that following Christ is living the life of Christ. So let's go back to verse 14 real quick. He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. And what things is he talking about? This could include the whole letter um, because nothing Paul wrote was written for the purpose of bringing the church to shame. But the things Paul just wrote in chapter four, the things we talked about last week, it was especially scathing. He was sarcastic. He seems to take up this mocking tone when he wrote in verse 8, he said, oh, you're already full. 
you're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. It's all very tongue-in-cheek. And when he tells them how, uh, how horrible the living conditions are for the apostles, they're homeless, sick, hungry, thirsty, persecuted, all while the Corinthians are jockeying for position and trying to look real shiny and important. This should have been embarrassing for the church. It should have cut through their pride. And it's true that whenever someone's pride is broken, the first feeling may be a sense of shame. So Paul trusts that the words in the first half of chapter 4 had their effect. And that's where he picks it up in verse 14. He says, my point isn't just for you to feel the wound. He, he knows his words have cut deep. So now he's quick to say, it's not my intent to only make you ashamed. It's my goal not to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. Some of Paul's warnings have already been seen in Corinthians. We've read about these. The most recent warning was to consider their own arrogance and comfort in light of the apostles' profound humility. This warning was a mirror. He was showing them, you're going down the wrong path. You're not following us. You're, not, you're following your own desires for preeminence. This is not the way of the cross, so I'm telling you, follow us by taking up your cross. And that's really Paul's greater warning that has stretched all the way from chapter 1 and won't end here in chapter 4. Don't belittle the cross. Do not neglect the message of the crucifixion. Paul argues this point theologically in many places, but in Corinthians, it's not so much theological. It's more highlighting the practical ramifications of a cross-oriented life. He shows what a life modeled around Christ and him crucified looks like. Remember, he's acting out the gospel. He's saying, look at me, imitate me, follow me all the way to Jesus. And the gospel that he is showing them, what's that look like? It looks like extreme humility and extreme sacrifice. And he warns the Corinthians not to neglect the narrow path in favor of easy destruction. So he says, I'm warning you as my little children. Don't touch that, it's hot. <laughs> this is very important. And Paul knows there is a need to further explain this relationship because there was a lot of, a lot of people in Corinth that were kind of writing off Paul as a has-been and saying, like, we don't need Paul anymore. We've got smarter people now. We've got the upgrade and Paul, in verse 15, he says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Remember in his metaphor of the church as a field, in chapter 3, he said, I planted and Apollos watered, right? And then when he used the picture of the building, he said, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. Paul is the first evangelist with boots on the ground in Corinth, and he planted the church. And for many of those in Corinth, it was Paul that initially led them to the Lord. And now he says, I am your spiritual father. You don't outgrow your father. There may have been lots of teachers. And when you have your first grade teacher, if you do a good job, you don't have them again in second grade. Well, I mean, sometimes. But, you know, like you, you, you can outgrow a teacher. That's fine. You don't outgrow the father. He says, I'm not a teacher. I'm your father. What's the main difference? Love. Paul's saying, I'm not your teacher, I'm your father. I'm not just trying to get you to understand things or pass a test. I'm trying to get you to become something, part of this family we're in. This is why Paul could say, I'm not just trying to shame you, I'm trying to warn you as my children. And the Corinthians, if you'll remember, were trying, they were kind of like collectors of good teachers. <laughs> you know, they, they were trying to collect all the best teachers and they could say, I listen to this guy and I follow this guy. But with a 1,000 teachers, 10,000 teachers, there was only one person who led them to Christ, and that was Paul. 
And while they could go to listen to the best teachers and follow the most skilled orators, the, be, uh, you know, the better, more successful the, the teacher is, the less likely that guy is even going to know your first name. Why? Because the crowds are bigger. If the teacher is truly world-class and on a world stage, if they're excellent, they've got that big following, then that teacher is less likely to be a spiritual father to all of his adoring fans. The Corinthians, they thought they wanted the best teachers, but what they really wanted, what they really needed was the love of a father. And Paul is saying, guys, you can get teachers anywhere, but I'm your dad. Again, the real difference, the striking difference between teachers and fathers ought to be love. It's the relationship. Now, of course, teachers can love their students, but we only say that because we only have the one word for love in English, as I'm sure you've heard plenty of times. In Greek, there was plenty of different words for love for different kinds. There's a kind of love that existed within a family, the love that a family has for one another, storge. Never shows up in scripture, actually, but the, the awareness of this kind of love that was reserved for families would be something, an awareness that the Corinthians surely had. And even without that kind of vocabulary, we know that there is a big difference between the love a teacher might have for a good student and the love a father has for his son. This is all very important in light of the nature and tone of this letter we've been studying. Because what's the letter to the Corinthians? It's, it's a switch. Okay? It's, it's, it's a letter of correction. And a teacher can certainly bring correction but it's for different reasons entirely than, than what Paul has in mind. The difference between the Corinthians' teachers and their father, Paul, is a difference in love, both quality and quantity. Now, there's more to the argument than that, and Paul really double down, doubles down on this parenthood thing, and he says in verse 15, I have begotten you through the gospel. He's saying, I gave you life. You know, you know the begottens. Uh, the word begotten shows up in all your long genealogies, Right? This guy begat that guy and begat that, those other guys. And the list goes on. And Paul is saying, you trace your spiritual genealogy, your spiritual lineage through me. Now, your local church, Calvary Chapel in Northward, wasn't planted by the Apostle Paul personally. But it is still important that we do see our spiritual lineage extend back to the apostles and the apostles' doctrine, the writing of Scripture. I don't think it's an accident that the Notable pastors and theologians of the first centuries of the church are referred to as the church fathers because the church saw the need for guides and leaders that are, that are loving like fathers. We trace our heritage back to the apostles, not by way of a family tree or a genealogy like you read somewhere where you list all the names connecting you and your great-great-granddad Paul, but we trace our lineage through the apostles by returning to the apostles' doctrine as we have it in the New Testament. And this lineage becomes important because by recognizing where you're from, you'll have an idea of where you need to go. And Paul, their father, he says, therefore, verse 16, I urge you, imitate me. If you know that I'm not just a teacher, I'm your father, well then come on, let's go to work together. Let me bring you to where I'm going. If you see what your father has done and how your father has lived, you'll be drawn to imitate him for better or for worse intentionally or otherwise, this is just something true about the mess that is human psychology, something true about the soul. Paul says, therefore, meaning because I'm not just your teacher, but your spiritual father, walk in my, footstep, my footsteps. And that's just what happens with kids and their dads. Now, of course, this lineage, this lineage, this heritage that Paul offers the Corinthians goes back beyond Paul. Paul is 
not the beginning of the genealogy. He is not Adam, but Jesus is Adam. That's actually something Paul's going to mention in 1 Corinthians later. He's the new Adam. And when Paul says, imitate me, he expands that encouragement in chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, your new dad. <laughs> That's a bold thing for Paul to say, isn't it? Imitate me. But he could only dare to ask his spiritual children to imitate him because he knew that he had completely committed his life to the imitation of Christ. Now, I... We need to often remember the greater context of this letter and why Paul could ask the church to imitate him and in what ways Paul was asking them to imitate him. Um, you know, you could make the mistake of assuming that this means he wanted the entire church to sound like Paul or serve like Paul or imitate Paul in, these, in Paul's specific giftings. Now, later in the letter, he's actually going to say the opposite is true. He doesn't want everyone to imitate Paul. He wants each member to serve in the way that they are called, not the way Paul is called. The whole picture of the body being made up of many members is this idea that there's one Paul and then there's one of you and only one. And you can't have a whole body that's just all mouth. You know, he's, he's not saying, let's play Simon Says and everyone do exactly the same thing. He's telling the church to imitate him in a very specific way that is applicable across all the members of the body and all the callings. And there's really two places where we see exactly how Paul describes himself in Corinthians. One right before this passage in chapter 4, 10 through 13, and then before that in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And I'll, I'll read you both of those passages because this is what Paul is calling the church to. When he says, imitate me, he's not saying, try and look like me, wear these kinds of clothes, do your hair like this, right? And he's not even saying everyone should go, Everyone go be missionaries the same way I am. He says, one plants, one waters. So he's not saying that. What is he saying? Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. He says this. He says, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Dot, dot, dot. Imitate me. Then chapter 2 goes on to contrast the wisdom of the world with the heavenly wisdom of the spirit. And then chapter 3, building on that, went to show the divisions in the church as just nonsense. It's not just that they were wrong, but they were just stupid, since all the people fighting with each other were actually on the same team. He says, Paul, Apollos, Peter, all those guys were all one in Christ. They weren't divided. And now we're in chapter 4, and he's really been laying into them, showing them that their arrogance, which is really the cause of the divisions, is ungodly, it's wrong, and not at all like Paul's ministry or Christ's ministry. So we come to chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul says this about himself and the other apostles. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You can put quotation marks around that one. We are weak, but you, you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. That's what the Corinthians just read. And that's where Paul says, that's who I am. This is who I am. And now, 
imitate me. Paul is calling the Corinthians to an extravagant humility. He's not wanting them to just be like him in style or in giftings or necessarily in any way, except in this, that Paul is willing to be a fool for Christ. He is willing to be nothing for the everything that is Jesus. He is willing to let go of everything in the world so he can cling to the cross with both hands. You know, there's one more place in Paul's letters where he tells the church to imitate him. It's twice in Corinthians, he says, imitate me, and then once in Philippians. In Philippians 3.17, he says, brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. So follow me, imitate me. Here's the example. Do like I do. That's Philippians 3.17. You know what else is in Philippians 3? It's that part where Paul lists all of his qualifications as a really great high-ranking Pharisee, and then he says, I would count it all rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Imitate me in throwing everything away. Imitate me in that. And of course, Philippians 3 comes after Philippians 2, because I'm good at books and math, and where Paul says, okay, in chapter 2, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe the humility and sacrifice of Jesus who emptied himself. And he says, that's the goal. That's the ideal. That's what we're after. That's where we're headed. So this is an argument Paul consistently makes with various churches. And he consistently makes it in the same way, by pointing the church to Christ and him crucified. By pointing the church to Christ who loved us first. Remember, it's, it's in both Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says this attitude of humility, it's not ours, it's Christ. He says, we have the mind of Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now see, without that realization, without an understanding of how Paul makes these arguments, this can become legalism real quick, right? Without our sights set firmly on Jesus and what he has done for us, all of this encouragement towards humility and sacrifice, it can just become another requirement that we are ultimately unable to fulfill. As I heard a pastor say recently, another brick in your backpack. Okay, But Paul's argument is never be better because. The gospel is always based on the truth of 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. The mind that we are told to have, that we are told we do have, it's first Christ's mind. And he shares it with us. This extravagant humility is attained by fellowship with Jesus. It is his love for us that we experience that we are being encouraged to walk in. Now, it can be hard to keep track of that kind of trajectory when we break down the chapters into bite-sized paragraphs the way we do on Sunday mornings. But even in short passages like this, I think we can see hints of what, Paul, what makes Paul's heart beat. He's telling them to do something. He is correcting them. But in doing so, he's telling them, I'm a father to you. I love you. And now when he says, imitate me, he He'll say, as I imitate Christ in, in chapter 11, and he shows by his actions here in chapter 4 that what they're imitating is actually a playing out of God's actions, the actions of God himself. Look at verse 17. He says, for this reason, because I love you, because I want to warn you, because I'm your father, because I want you to imitate me, for this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Do you see what Paul just said? He says, because I love you like your father and because I want you to become like me for this reason, 
I sent my son to you. Again, does that sound like anything else you've ever heard? And in the last verse, he offers them this choice. Do you want me to come again in kindness or to punish? Christ himself is coming again. And for some, this will be an act of kindness. And for some, it will be punishment. Remember how Paul preached the gospel to Corinthians, not only in word, but in power. He's been saying all along, I'm an object lesson. This is what crucifixion looks like. And he's, he's carrying this through. And we see in verse 20, he says, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It is worth noting that there is not a whole lot of doctrine that Paul corrects in Corinthians. There is some that'll show up later for sure, um, that'll show up later in the book. But it's not like Galatians where the correction is mostly doctrine-based. Corinthians isn't about correcting what the church believed as much as it is about how the church lived. So Paul preaches to the Corinthians with his life as much as with his words. We saw that all over the place in chapter 2, but here again, Look at the words he uses. He, their father, will send his son to them. So there's that gospel being lived out. And then look what Timothy is going to do. Timothy is going to remind the Corinthians of what? Read it. It says, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. His ways are taught. Timothy is going to remind them of Paul's ways, of his life. Now, doesn't this go right back to this central difference between a teacher and a father? A teacher is tasked with making a student know what they know. A father may teach one thing, but whether he likes it or not, for better or for worse, it is his ways that are taught. And Paul says that his son in the faith, Timothy, would remind them of Paul's life, his ways, how he lived. And specifically, it says he will remind them of his ways in Christ because it is Paul's cross-shaped life that the Corinthians needed to be reminded of. It was Paul's ability to say, I die daily. It was Paul's fervency in saying, I count it all loss that I may gain Christ. It was Paul's Christ-given ability to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That was his life. Those ways in Christ, that's what the church in Corinth needed to be reminded of. They needed to see what a sacrificial leader looked like. Man, how do we get there? How are we going to get to this place of Christ-like humility, Christ-like obedience, Christ-like sacrifice? I think the only way is by imitating our Father, by following more than just teaching, but the life of Christ. The Corinthians could look at Paul and see an accurate reflection, an accurate portrayal, but it was Paul's ultimate goal to have the Corinthians imitate Jesus himself. We are not called only to learn the gospel we are called to live the gospel. You know by now that we're really into the Bible here at this church, and we should be, and we'll continue to be. But the words of the kingdom are not the goal, because the kingdom of God is meant to come in power. It's lives lived according to the crucified Savior. It's cross-shaped lives. It's cross-oriented church. And in the midst of all this correction that Paul's been laying down that we'll continue in when we get into chapter 5, and you know, there's some pretty snarky scoldings there. In the midst of all of this correction, Paul, instead of saying, go there, do that, be better, he says, I'm your father. Just come imitate me. We follow Paul as he follows Christ. And we have in Christ one who shows us the father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. 
He has come to reveal to us what the Father is like. So we know that the ultimate call here is that we would imitate our Father, to be about our Father's business. How do you learn to walk like your Father? You walk with your Father, that's how. How do you sound like your Father? Well, you talk with your Father. How do you know what your father would do in a certain situation so that you you can know how to imitate him, to be like him? Well, you live with him. You be with him. You follow him. This is what Paul is inviting an entire church to. He says, come to the cross with me. Come to the cross with me. This is where Jesus is. This is where you learn the heart of God. Let's go to him now. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us such examples as these, but more than that, we thank you for giving us the invitation to come and be about our Father's business. We thank you for for sending your Son, Father. We thank you for this passage of Scripture that, that shows these truths in an interesting detail. We thank you that you love us enough to pull us back from the edge to correct us. God, in this, in this long letter of correction, we're, we're gaining boldness in coming to you, seeing that, that it's, it's out of your love that you tend to us so carefully. I pray that your word to your church today would have its full effect, that the word of Scripture, which has gone out, would not return to you void, that the seed that is the word would find purchase in good soil that you have tilled, that you have prepared that we would be a fruitful church because of the things that you're doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent to preach the gospel.